Hello, everybody. I'm just going to take it off now. Um, ah, be able to breathe a bit better. So much can change in a week. This Monday, many of you were supposed to be going back into your offices at 75% capacities, but of course that has changed now. For many of you, you're already working 100% uh, in the offices and have never stopped during this whole time. And for some of you, since last March, you've been working from home. So it's been an interesting time as we um, have to navigate our relationship with work, um, especially as, as some of you might have lost jobs during this pandemic as well. And so I, w I wanted today to talk about work and, and our interaction with work and how do we find meaning and purpose in work. And during this time, how do you feel about work? Interestingly enough, during the pandemic, um, there was a, a report done by Randstad Work Monitor about job satisfaction. And interestingly, job satisfaction remained about the same in Australia at about 69% of workers being satisfied. Now, let me see if I can. Nope, that's all right. APAC is who we are, the Australia, Asia, Pacific um, there. So 69%, that's not too bad. Most people are satisfied with their work. But how can we continue to find meaning and satisfaction at work, especially, as I said, as we navigate all the various um, pandemic regulations and, and this new environment that we're living in? And I want to propose to you today that we can find satisfaction and meaning at work or at school or whatever situation and role we find ourselves in when we answer the primary calling of God in our lives. Now, what do I mean by a primary calling of God in our lives? Well, Os Guinness, who's a social critic and writer, defines calling in this way. He says, calling is the truth that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we do, and everything we have is invested with a special devotion, dynamism, and direction lived out as a response to his summons and service. We are not primarily called to do something or to go somewhere. We are called to someone. We are called to someone. And that's the primary calling of God in our lives, that we are called to God. And we're called to God in such a way that that relationship transforms the way we work, the way we live, the way we interact with others. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician, physicist, and inventor. He was the one who invented the mechanical calculator. He made significant contributions to geometry, calculus, and the theory of probability. By the way, when he invented the world's first mechanical calculator, he was only 19 years old. Then, when he was 31 years old, November 23rd, 1654, he had an experience, a supernatural experience that changed his life forever. We don't know exactly what happened, but he had a vision that lasted for full two hours. And after that experience, he, he jotted down a response that was like, you know, jumbled because he was so ecstatic and overwhelmed. He was in tears. But, he, but the words he jotted down, um, he later sewed into his coat and he carried it with him for the rest of his life. And they discovered this when he died. It was in his coat, um, sewn into his coat. These, these words of response to this experience he had. Words like, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, joy, peace. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one and true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. 
I left him, I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is the only he is kept secure only by the ways taught in the gospel. Complete surrender to Jesus. May I not forget your words. Amen. And he you know, this response that he had, he carried with him for the rest of his life. And it changed the direction of his life. And for the remainder of his life, he devoted himself to, to, to theology and writing. You know, he continued to do scholarly work. Um, sadly, he passed away at a young age of 39. Um, but his collective works were uh, posthumously published as very uninspired title, Thoughts, by um, Monsieur Pascal Ponce in French. And in this collection, you find um, his his um, what you know we call it apologetics, which is a fancy word for saying his defense of Christianity. He wrote basically a defense of Christianity that, like I said, he didn't get to finish, but they they put it together and they published um, it under the word under the book Ponce. And there's a passage in it that I've I've brought for you to um, to reflect on. He says what he talks about how every person, right, every human being has this has this uh, desire to pursue happiness, right? That we want to be happy. And he says how every single person wants to be happy and they pursue it, but never arrive, right? That you could have everything in the world, but still not be happy. So there's something still missing. And he identifies this and he says, what is it then that this desire and this inability to proclaim to us, but that there was once in man a true happiness of which there now remains to him only, the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. So this is the famous kind of God-shaped hole in the heart. You might have heard of that phrase before, that God-shaped vacuum in our hearts that only God can fill. It comes from Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and physicist who discovered that it is in that relationship with God that humanity, that men and women can feel fulfilled. And having that relationship with that God makes all the difference as we live out our lives in the workplace, in the home, in our school, in our um, interpersonal relationships. This is how Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 onwards. He talks about how we worry about, right, what to wear, what to eat, what to drink, and, and, and that kind of anxiety can consume us. And he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What does Jesus mean when he says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness? I remember when I was in the seminary learning biblical Greek and, um, you know, going through the studies of, of theology. And I will never forget what the phrase kingdom of God means. And I remember my, my theology professor, she said, basileia, that's the Greek word for kingdom. She said, it's based on a verb that means to reign. So the kingdom of God is not a physical place. 
But the kingdom of God is wherever and whenever anyone submits to the authority of God as king. So the kingdom of God is, you know, we often think about whenever the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, we think about heaven, right? We think about the second coming, right? We think about kind of a physical place where God is physically at. But the kingdom of God is wherever and whenever people say, I accept you as Lord over my life. You can reign over my life. I, I surrender to you and I, and I want to do your will. Whenever that happens, there is the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he's saying, hey, seek me first, accept me first as Lord of your, over your lives. So of course, you've got many roles, right? You, 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 you work for your boss, but he says, but ultimately, he's the one who is our ultimate boss, right? He's the one to, to whom we uh, glorify our lives with, our purpose, the, the reason why we live is for him. And every other role in our lives is, is a way to achieve that. Establishing and deepening our relationship with God is the most urgent and important work we will ever do because that is what is going to infuse meaning into our work. So it's not the work that brings us meaning, but it's God who brings meaning to our work. It's not the work that, that gives us our, our sense of identity, but it is God who gives us a sense of identity so that we can, in our workplace, do our best. That's why Joseph, who was a Hebrew boy, who was sold into slavery by his half-brothers in the 18th century BC, he was able to be a slave, and then he was able to be a, a, a falsely accused convict in prison, and then he was able to be a governor of Egypt. So very different roles, right? From slavery to governor. But he was able to do all those different things with the same integrity and the same character and the same commitment to God. So that whether he was a slave or whether he was a governor, he was doing an excellent work. And, and I don't mean excellent just in the sense of he was promoted. He was, but that's not all I mean. I mean with, with the faithfulness to God, being a moral, ethical person, being honest, treating others fairly. And people saw that in him, and it was so countercultural that they promoted him, that they trusted him. Right. So when he was working as a slave for his captain, uh, his master Potiphar, Potiphar trusted him so completely that he gave him, he made him in charge of his, all his household, all his wealth. And he actually says to Joseph, "I don't even know how my business is going. All I know is what the, I'm eating right in front of me. But I trust you, so I leave it all in your hands." to a slave from a foreign land because Joseph's character was so trustworthy. And when he was uh, falsely accused and and thrown into prison, the prison guard, it says, the Bible says, that he left the entire prison to Joseph's care. Joseph is a prisoner, but he let Joseph run the prison because once again, he trusted Joseph because he saw that Joseph was an honest, faithful in a person of moral integrity, someone that he could be trusted, even though he was a prisoner, to go in and out between the prison, to take care of the others, to, to go visit the prisoners, make sure everybody was all right. And then, of course, when he became the governor of Egypt, he became second only to Pharaoh himself. And he was able to manage um, all the grains and all, all the um, gathering of food that was happening during that time and the distribution of food and the distribution of the Pharaoh's lands. Right? No matter what he was in charge of, Joseph could be trusted because 
his primary calling to God was consistent. So that no matter what his circumstances, people saw the difference in him. When we prioritize our primary calling of seeking and serving God, of surrendering to him, whether we're a teacher, an engineer, a doctor, gardener, homemaker, or pastor, right? When we prioritize God's will in our lives, then we live for something greater than a paycheck or a career or a legacy or even the pursuit of happiness. We're living for someone and that brings meaning to everything we do. We have the greater purpose of contributing to God's kingdom expansion, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So that when we're working, we're not doing just our best work, but we're doing it ethically. We're doing it morally. We're doing it according to God's principles of justice, mercy, and humility. Now I want you to just pause and think about your workplace, right? And I want you to picture your workplace. Kind of think about the first few words that come to mind when you think about your workplace. Is it a place of justice, mercy, and humility? Okay. Think about the culture of your workplace. Is it a place that promotes kindness and compassion and acceptance? And I ask these questions because for many of us, the answer is no, 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 right? Because the culture that we live in, um, and, and if you do have a workplace that is all those things, that's fantastic. But for many of us, the workplace is a stressful place, right? Where there's a lot of backbiting, where there's a lot of politics, where there's a lot of, uh, you know, competition, where there's a lot of um, perhaps misunderstanding or, you know, not a lot of appreciation, right? where it feels like sometimes you, you're working, but someone else is getting all the benefits and you feel like maybe you're just a clog in the works, right? But what if we can be at that workplace, not working for that environment, but we're going in there, working for God, and we can be a part of transforming that culture by bringing into it the principles of God's kingdom and acting differently with those around us. Paul, the first century Christian theologian and missionary, wrote to the new believers in Jesus in the city of Colossae. And the, this is a city that was, uh, you know, not Christian, right? They believed in, in the Roman gods. They, they uh, definitely uh, persecuted the Christians and the Jews. And so these new believers, these new converts to Christianity, they were struggling with, how do I interact with my, my colleagues, right? How do I interact with non-Christians? How do I become a Christian in this city? And this is what Paul said. He says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
Notice that Paul mentions a few important principles. I've color coded the one that you know he repeats three times. He says, "Be thankful. Be thankful." When business consultant Stephanie Pollock was brought in to help a certain workplace, morale was very low. After a three-day retreat with them where she taught a small group of very reluctant workers the practice of gratitude, the culture of the workplace changed. It all started with one person who wrote a very genuine note of thanks, um, and they put it on a wall at the workplace. And that one person's act then started other people writing notes of appreciation and sticking it in what became this appreciation wall. And within a few months, the morale of this group changed completely. The culture of this company that um, Stephanie had been called into that was, you know, people, people were unhappy with each other and, and um, you know, production and efficiency was low and everything was, was not going well. But once people started appreciating each other right, and showing gratitude, that place became a workplace that was not only happy but productive and efficient and, and the team culture changed. People became authentic and open with each other, sharing with each other how they're really feeling and going. Ryan Fair, an associate professor of management at the University of Washington, has published a paper showing that gratitude and appreciation contribute to a new workplace environment where people find meaning and connection and satisfaction. So practicing thankfulness can really transform your environment. I know that there's kind of this um, practice of whinging together, you know, and I think that's great, you know, being able to, with your colleagues, whinge together and there, there's a bit of connection. But what if we practice gratitude together? What if we started a culture of thankfulness, of appreciation, and, and not just saying, oh, thank you, just offhand like that, but being specific in our appreciation for each other. For example, thank you, James and Kim, for coming and setting up the media equipment today. Right? We, Roy and I were, were uh, setting up the chairs and things, and I was like, ah! <laughs> and, and when they came, it was like, ah! Right? Immediate relief, because I know they've got it. Right? And, and, and thank you for, for Gail and Janelle and Shendon for, for welcoming and opening doors and letting people in. And there, there are so many ways that we can show appreciation for people but by just saying thank you. Thank you. And, and it, sometimes we just take it for granted because it's part of their job or it's, you know, in our workplace, it's, it's something that we expect. But really showing appreciation and thankfulness, it not only brightens their day, but it actually does something in our own hearts. Because instead of being in that place saying, ugh, I don't want to be here, right? We're there being grateful, finding things that we can be thankful for. And that changes our attitude and our feeling of satisfaction, and, and, and connection to where we are. And if we stopped and reflected, we actually have so much to be thankful for. Like, yes, we're wearing masks, but how thankful are we, right, that we didn't have any more cases, that we're in a, in a place where really we can be safe. You know, I think about um, every day my family in the U.S., and they've got over 400,000 deaths from COVID um, and many, many, many people who are sick. Um, and I'm just grateful every day that they're safe and healthy, and I'm grateful for where we are, especially. The second thing that Paul mentions in Colossians is this idea of the indwelling word. So he says, be grateful, and he also says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. 
And I like that word dwell because it implies that the word of God is not just going in one year and out the other. And it's not just, you know, something that you glance at and forget. But the word of God is something that lives within you. It's something that you take and that you wrestle with and you absorb and you apply it. And it becomes a part of the core of who you are and what you live for. So the word of God is doing something in your heart and mind and it's doing, it's being lived out then in the workplace, in your home, in your school, in your relationships. And so in an example of this is, is when we, when we listen and we absorb what God says about who we are, right? Then we let God's voice determine our identity so that when we are in the workplace and let's say someone criticizes us rather than reacting in you know, defensiveness or pride or, or, or hiding in a corner and crying, which is what I would do. Or, you know, there's so many different ways that we can respond, respond to criticism or to someone doing something we don't like when we're coming from a place of insecurity. But when we are secure in who we are in God, we can take that criticism and, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take that on board. So how we respond and react and, 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 and interact with others in the workplace, in the home, in our schools, um, can be changed when we let that word of God dwell in us. Let that word of God be a core of who we are. So that we can act from a place of security and compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, as Paul says. The word of God reminds us why we're really here and what our life purpose is, what we're really living for. So that our workplace becomes a laboratory where our characters are being tested and where we get to practice living out our primary calling in God. And one day, someone may ask you, what is your secret? How can you be so patient? Right? How can you be so kind? How come you are different? And you may be given the opportunity to share because you're living for an audience of one. So many of us live for an audience of hundreds. Right? We, we, we're, we care so very much about what people think, and that's good. We should care, but we care more than what God thinks about it. And so we know the anxiety of, of trying to please everybody leaves us very unfulfilled. But when we, when we live for the audience of one, right, we know that we are, we are uh, following and living out God's principles of justice, mercy, and humility in our lives. Then even if people don't like us, or even if people criticize us, right, we can still respond with compassion and kindness and not crumble apart inside as well. So how do we get this indwelling of, of God's word in us? I like how in Colossians, um, he mentions a few, few ways. He says, singing hymns, right? He's, he talks about music and singing. And, and I think that's why music has that power, right? That the lyrics stay in your head. Right? That's a way that it can dwell within you. It reminds you. And um, music helps you memorize. So back back in the olden days, they didn't have books, they didn't have um, you know writings the way that we have today. So the way that they would have God's word in their minds um, is to memorize it. And so the priest or the rabbi would would be reading these passages. They would have the scrolls, right? Very precious. Only a few copies. So they would roll them out, read them out loud in the synagogues, in the temples. And then people, and, and they would put it kind of to music. They would kind of chant it to music so that people could memorize it and listen to it. And they would repeat it in their minds over and over again so they would have the word in their hearts. And that's why um, last year we had that memorization challenge, right? To, to memorize scripture. 
another way that you can kind of dwell on the words a bit longer is if you copy scripture. I remember um, our family when we were little, we had these blank, humongous blank books. And basically every day we would copy um, one chapter of the Bible. And it's amazing, you know, that some people are are visual learners, but others um, are kinesthetic learners. And so it's the movement that helps us learn. And I'm one of those people. So if I, you know, in school, I remember if I want to memorize something, flashcards didn't help me. But if I copy it down by hand, then I would remember. And so if you're a kinesthetic learner, right, just maybe one verse a day, just copy it down. If you're, uh, you know, if you need music, if you're a very musical person, then yeah, there are songs, um, uh, or an auditory learner, I suppose. The, there are Bible apps, like the um, the main Bible app, the version Bible app, that if you ever noticed, has a little button on top, has a little volume button. It actually reads the Bible verse out loud to you, so that when you're uh, on your commute or taking a walk, you can just listen to the Word of God. Or if, of course, you're visual, you can you can read um, the word. But there's so many different ways that you can absorb um, God's word into your life. I want to invite you to a 10-day reading challenge. So, whoop, what's that? There it is. <laughs> there's a 10-day reading challenge. I, I went through a, a, over a dozen different reading plans um, to find the, the right one. And I really, really like this one. And um, it's, a t- it's only 10 days. Um, and it's called Thrive in the City by living into the great story. And it's specifically for people who are in the city working, but it also applies to everyone else. So um, it, it's good for everyone, but it's specifically for that for that demographic. And it, it kind of works through how can you work out God's story in your workplace? How can you live out God's story in your life? And so I really, really hope you can join um, me in this challenge. It's starting on Monday. Originally, I thought, you know, Monday, 75% going back, be a good start, but it doesn't matter. Um, Monday is when it begins, and it goes for 10 days. But you can join now, so you can scan the QR code to join, um, or if you, don't, if you can't scan the QR code, just let me know, and I'll send you the link. And for 10 days, every day, um, in the version Bible app, basically what it'll do is there's a little, um, little thought, um, which I think is it's quite interesting to read through. There's some reflection questions for you to ponder. Um, there's some Bible passages for you to read. And then if you join this challenge, you actually have the opportunity to share your thoughts and your questions with the group, with whoever else has, has joined. And personally, I love that part because that's when we can really engage with the material and apply it to our personal lives. So I really hope you'll join us for this. For the next 10 days, let's... Let the word of God dwell in us as we wrestle with how do we live out God's story in our workplace? How do we live out God's story in our home? How do we make this practical in our lives? And so please join us for this challenge. And I, and I pray that um, as you practice gratefulness, right? as you practice um, shifting that attitude and being more thankful, right? not only internally but out loud and showing appreciation for others in your workplace, in your home, in your schools, but also as you allow God's word to transform us internally and, and live that out, right? That you'll be able to find meaning and con- connection and fulfillment um, in whatever role that you're in. That as you answer God's primary call, that everything else in your life will be impacted and transformed. And so please join me. Let me know if you have any questions um, and we'll be able to to journey together. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts and your prayers. I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. 
Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. Thank you that we can still worship together. Thank you that we get to be in Melbourne, this amazing city with so many people and so many opportunities. And Father, thank you for giving us your story and for, for making us participants of that story, of making your kingdom grow. And Father, help, help that to begin with us, each one of us saying, yes, Lord, you are allowed to be king and Lord over my life. I give you authority. And Father, may, may we, through that surrender, live our lives in such a way that others will see that we are different and that they may ask questions that lead to your kingdom coming into their lives. And Father, I pray that as, as we journey through this 10-day Bible challenge together, um, that we'll be able to explore further questions and, and wrestle with how do we live out God's story in our lives on a daily basis. And Father, make us individuals who, like Blaise Pascal, find that meaning and fulfillment and purpose and realize that, that, that that's the greatest joy that we can have. That's certitude and peace in knowing you. I pray in your son's name. Amen.